Hearing dark stories in a podcast is one thing, but living in darkness is quite another. If you're living with depression and trying to deal with it using alcohol, illegal drugs, or other bad influences, please pick up the phone right now and get help. 800-831-1560. Every 12 minutes, someone dies of an overdose. Every 6 minutes, from alcohol abuse. Call 800-831-1560. With the FMLA, you can even take a leave of absence from your job and still keep it. 800-831-1560. Stories and content in weird darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Welcome, Weirdos! I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness and Creepy Pasta Thursday. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, fact or fiction, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And if you're new here, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. I post a new episode every weekday. In this episode, I have three creepypasta stories to share with you, and we'll begin with a story called I'm a Glutton. Just the title of this one made me intrigued, probably because I can relate. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. You know that feeling you get when you eat too much? That uncomfortable pressure that just makes your throat feel like a pipe ready to burst? I wish I could feel that. Stuffed. Full. I have never said the words, I can't eat another bite. I always could. Bite after bite after bite. Twelve plates of pasta and sausage at one Italian place open and close a buffet on my days off, and still wrap up the night with three full ice cream cakes. It didn't matter how much I ate, I'd stuff my face until my stomach ached, but still it wanted more. Now, I know what you're thinking. How do I even fit in the car? Hell, how do I even type with hams for hands? I'm skinny as a rail, a sickly-looking 120. A stiff breeze would kill me, snap me like a reed. It's as if my belly was a furnace that burned everything up before it could be of any use. When I was younger, on my parents' insurance, I got tested for everything you could imagine. Three different types of tapeworms, parasites with names you can't pronounce. Clean as a whistle. They checked me into a dozen, a baker's dozen, health clinics, each one with an eating disorder specialist that was sure they knew the cause but none did, and in the end, my mom and dad just gave up. Made me get a part-time job as soon as I could, though, you know, to help with the grocery budget. That part-time job became a full-time job that stretched 20 years. I work at a plant that produces those takeout containers for restaurants. You know the ones, generic white styrofoam or plastic with the cheap lids. 
I know it sounds weird, but sometimes, while I was pressing them down through the paper, I felt like them. Those empty bowls, waiting to be filled, only to be empty again. I identify with those containers even more when I come home after work. There are so many that wait for me. Empty of the Chinese takeout, of the pizza, of the fries and burgers, they stack up from floor to ceiling, spill out from the table and pile in heaps on the floor. I've got to wade through a sea of wrappers just to make it to the couch. I ended up in a dump with them, tossed away. My parents haven't spoken to me in years. I can't even tell you why, honestly. My morning routine never changes. Get up and fry a dozen eggs in my fire hazard of a kitchen, stop at a biscuit place and pick up my usual order. I've got them thinking these six combo meals are for me and my co-workers. They don't even make it to the parking lot of work. Lunch? I wolf down two subs. Lunch is the worst, not long enough to go get something and come back, though sometimes I deal with the bullcrap from the floor manager and take my time. Then head home for a dinner that takes all night to finish. Sometimes I start at six and don't stop until midnight. Most of my paycheck goes to my stomach. That was my every day, up until I met Audrey. She was the new office girl in charge of order fulfillment, blonde with reddish highlights, a dye job but a good one. In her 40s, it would turn out but a 40s that would make most women jealous. She always smelled like strawberry hand sanitizer. We just clicked. She'd only been there two days before we were texting after work. Jokes and cat memes at first, but soon we took lunch together, then a few dinners. I always left those smiling and starving, tears in my eyes from the pangs of hunger twisting up my guts. Audrey was like a ray of sunshine. I never smiled more than when she'd call me out of the blue to chat about her day. We didn't have days off together very often, so she'd check in on her breaks. I would sit there and listen as she vented about the ordering department screwing up yet another file, me munching on the odd roach that would scurry by. It was one of our rare days off together that she called in sobbing. She told me her mother had had a stroke and she had to leave right away. It was a six-hour drive. I told her I would be right there, pick her up in my car. She grew silent. You ever watch recordings of bombs going off like the nuclear test site footage? Remember how quiet it gets right before the bomb explodes? That's what her silence was like. I waited. She took a breath. Then the boom. She needed me to watch her baby. I was stunned. We had been dating, official, over three weeks now, and this was the first she'd ever mentioned having a kid. She apologized and rambled. It had been a bad split from her ex. She wanted to tell me but couldn't find the right time. I asked her how she'd managed to go on our dates. Sometimes they were spur-of-the-moment runs to the pizza shop she liked. Turns out her babysitter lived in the apartment next door, but she was gone on some school trip this week. Why not take the baby with her? Well, her parents didn't know. They hadn't wanted her to get married in the first place. Got the feeling there was a lot more there, but 
I couldn't stand to hear the pain in her voice anymore. So I told her the truth. It was all right. I didn't care if she had a kid. I'd be over at her place as soon as I could. She told me she loved me. At that moment, I wouldn't have cared if she had a dozen kids. Her place was small and on the top floor of a brownstone walk-up. I was a little out of breath by the time I made it inside, and my stomach did a little spasm. Audrey was a whirlwind of emotion and frantic action. I'll be back as soon as I know she's okay. She showed me the living room and pointed out her bedroom. He's in there, taking a nap. He is a doll, really. I asked her how old she was. He'll be a year old next month. She looked into my eyes. You okay? I'm sorry I didn't tell you. She let it hang in the air between us. It's okay. I love you. Go see your mom. I'll watch little... what's his name? I realized I never asked. Tommy. He'll wake up in an hour or two. Just went down. Bottles are in the fridge. She gave me a hug and a rushed kiss as she made her way out the door. I forgot to go shopping, but help yourself to whatever you want. She locked the door behind her. As soon as the lock clicked, I started tearing through the cabinets. That quiver in my stomach had grown to a full quake. Gurgles of stomach acid started to creep up my throat. I opened a box of elbow noodles and swallowed mouthfuls whole. There wasn't much at all. She had a few things – ramen noodles, a bottle of pasta sauce, besides the box of other noodles. I rummaged through the fridge and found a stick of butter three old-looking micro-carrots next to some questionable spring mix. That was it, other than the six bottles of milk on the top shelf. It was going to be a long six hours. I want to say that I held out for a while before drinking the sauce cold to chase down the slimy vegetables. It had only been an hour. I boiled the noodles into a soup with the butter and ate them by hour two. That was when Tommy woke up. He was a cute little guy, had his mother's blue eyes. He was probably pretty confused to see me when I scooped him up out of his crib. We had something in common, though. He was hungry, too. I cooed and danced him up and down a bit while I got a bottle ready. He went to town on that thing, drained half in record time. I figured I'd put on something bright and colorful for him while he ate. Ended up on some cartoon. Tommy seemed to like it. He wasn't crying his head off like other babies. He was a doll, just like Audrey said. We sat there, him next to me on a little pillow I found. He smiled when I tickled his feet. This wasn't so bad. Before long, I tuned out of the mindless cartoon and ended up falling asleep. I woke up to two things, Tommy crying his head off and my whole body aching. The fire in my stomach had spread through my whole body. My teeth ached, and I felt thinner. I mean, thinner. My hands were skeletal, and I knew if I pulled up my shirt, I could count my ribs. The apartment was full of shadows due to the setting sun. I'd been out for hours. I tried to pick the little guy up to calm him down, but I felt a wave of dizziness like I'd been on a tilt-a-whirl. I fumbled out my phone. Audrey had texted me that she'd arrived and her mom was in the ICU. I sent her love and an update that me and Tommy were fine. My fingers trembled as I pressed against the screen. 
I forced myself off the sofa. I opened the fridge and drained one of the bottles. Then another. And another. It wasn't enough. It wasn't even close. I felt my organs shift and a sharp stab shot through my chest. Stars exploded behind my eyes and one thought filled my mind. This was it. I was dying. I was actually starving to death. I don't know where the energy came from, but I went back through the kitchen until I came across the tin of formula. I tore off the lid and buried my face in the cloud of powdered milk. I choked and sputtered, coughed out as much as I managed to get down my throat. Tommy kept crying. I crawled my way back to the couch and tried to calm him down, but he was not having it. The closer I got, the better he smelled, though. Sweet. Milk-fed. Pink skin so soft. I could feel great gobs of saliva run down my lips, felt the mix with the powder into a sticky paste. I wrapped my bony hands around his tiny body to pick him up, to calm him down, just just to calm him down a little. Audrey came home around noon the next day. She looked haggard but opened the door with a smile on her face and a box of pizza in her hand. I met her in the entryway. Her mother had made it through the worst of it. They'd even managed to have a chat before she left. She asked how Tommy was and why there was white stuff all over my shirt. I laughed and explained that the kid could eat had to make him some new formula. He'd gone down right after lunch. Speaking of lunch, she held up the pizza and opened it. Supreme, my favorite. Hungry? I felt my lips pull back in a smile. No, I told her. I'm finally full. Up next, it's the creepy pasta story, I've Always Hated Dolls. That story and more when Weird Darkness returns. If you were unfortunate enough to not receive a MyPillow as a gift this year, well, why not gift yourself? Right now, you can get two premium MyPillows and two Go Anywhere pillows for one low price. And free shipping is still available. You can check it out right now. Just go to MyPillow.com and then click on the four-pack special. Use the promo code WEIRD and you get free shipping, even now after the holidays. That's MyPillow.com. Click on the four-pack special and enter the promo code WEIRD for free shipping. Everyone has their fears, whether they are rational or irrational. Mine has always been dolls. Not all dolls, mainly just the ones that are a bit too human. I think it's mainly the eyes that get to me. So I'm sure you can imagine I was ecstatic to find out I was the inheritor of my very own clown doll. It was a gift from my late great-aunt. I'd met her maybe once or twice in my life, so why she left this of all things to me was beyond me. This doll was something straight from my nightmares. I mean, a doll was bad enough, but then you throw in the clown element as well? 
The doll's glass-like face was painted white, with red accents and markings over the eyes, mouth, and cheeks. The eyes themselves, however, were nothing but a black void. It has thick, white hair jetting out the sides and a round hat that almost resembles a cherry on top. Its outfit is essentially your typical clown attire. Like the face, it was a mixture of red and white. This doll is about the size of a toddler. In other words, way too big for me to feel comfortable anywhere near it. I would have given it away, but out of respect for my grandmother, I kept it. So, naturally, its new home would be my closet. I placed it in the back, on top of an old dresser that held clothes which no longer fit me. I thought that would be that, and my life would go on as it always had. Unfortunately, that would not be the case. I'm not exactly a tidy person, so my clothes rarely made it back to my closet. As a result, I didn't have to see my clown friend for quite a while. It was a few weeks later before I finally went into my closet in the quest for a clean pair of jeans. And there he was, sitting on the floor in front of the dresser. I assumed he must have fallen off the dresser somehow because I clearly remember setting him on top. Those empty black eyes were too much for me, though. I grabbed my jeans quickly and left without bothering to put him back on top. I spent the rest of the day thinking about how that doll could have fallen off the dresser. So, as a curious person, I decided to check out the closet when I returned home. The doll was there, of course, but it was back to its original position atop the dresser. I approached it and looked into those empty eyes. Nothing. As much as it creeped me out, it was just a doll, right? I must have just imagined seeing it on the floor. I mean, I live alone, so there's no way anybody else could be moving it. Regardless, I decided to stay clear of the closet as much as possible. A couple nights later, I was awoken to the sound of what seemed to be laughter, and it appeared to be coming from the closet. It was very faint, which is why I was a bit surprised it woke me. Generally, I'm a very heavy sleeper. For something like this to wake me was quite odd. The last thing I wanted to do was go into that closet, so I decided to attempt to wait it out. After about 30 seconds, I heard a loud thump, and then the laughter stopped. After turning on every light possible and arming myself with a kitchen knife, I decided it was time to check the closet. I slowly opened the door, and it was completely normal. Absolutely nothing was out of place. Even the doll was sat up on its normal spot on top of the dresser. I picked up the doll and felt around to see if there was any sort of speech box, but there wasn't. With a loud sigh, I set the clown back down and left my closet. Perhaps I was finally losing it. Over the next couple of days, I was on high alert. I began to notice small things here and there had gone missing or were moved, most notably small bits of food that I swear I hadn't eaten. I relentlessly searched every nook and cranny of my small house, looking for any possible signs of vermin or other intruders. Everywhere, that is, except the closet. Alas, my searches turned up nothing. 
further confirming my idea that I was, in fact, losing it. That was until a couple nights later when the laughing returned, only this time it wasn't just faint laughter. This was a booming cackle. The laugh seemed to reverberate throughout my whole house. I was petrified. I didn't dare move an inch from my bed. The laughing persisted, and I began to hear loud banging noises coming from my closet until suddenly its door swung open. A large, dark figure emerged and stormed out of my room. I heard it sprint through my house, opening my front door and leaving. As soon as this happened, the laughter stopped. After reminding myself to breathe, I was finally able to move from my bed. I approached the closet. What I found devastated me. My old dresser was no longer against the wall. Instead, it was now in the middle of my closet, and where the dresser had been was a hole. A hole easily large enough for a human to fit behind, but small enough that you'd never notice it if it was being covered up. Beside the hole was the doll, seated perfectly upright, with one arm outstretched towards the hole. I didn't dare look into the hole, afraid of what I might find. Instead, I grabbed the doll and locked myself in my car as I called 911. The police later confirmed my suspicions of what had happened. Someone had been living in my home. Inside the hole was a pallet where the person had been sleeping, as well as a small amount of trash. Worst of all, the person had a small collection of pocket knives. They were probably not meant to be used as weapons, but it's still not exactly comforting thinking about it. Since that night, my clown friend has not left my room. He now has his own special perch on my table next to the bed. I'm still not a huge fan of dolls, but perhaps they aren't all so bad. Up next, our final story, an original creepypasta written by one of our very own Weirdo family members. It's called The Snow Queen's Children, and it's up next. Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? How would you like to be a published author with Dorrance Publishing? They've been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly a hundred years, and your book could be next. And they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book. Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign, making your book available everywhere people buy books – online like Amazon, but also brick-and-mortar bookstores. Your only job is to write the book. Call Dorans Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362. 800-847-1362. Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Dorrance Publishing at 800-847-1362. Imagine, someday I might be promoting your book in my podcast. 800-847-1362. The sound of the pony's hooves was muffled by the snow. I sat in the trap, 
my bag on my knees, wondering how much further north we could actually go before we'd go over the top of the world and start going south again. There had been strange lights dancing in the skies. A portent, they said. The old woman in the last inn had shaken her head and said it bade no good for anybody. I didn't expect to be away for too long once the baby was delivered. A couple of weeks to a month was the usual length of time my services were required. This was not a usual booking, though. I had not even met the mother-to-be, and now her time was near. The driver was deaf, rude, or both. He would not answer my questions. He had collected me from the inn this morning, and we'd been driving all day. I was apprehensive. The unknown was before me. Come dusk, I was weary of travel, of the rolling fields of snow, of the stark, angular trees, of the pervading, invasive cold. In spite of my thick traveling clothes and the fur hat, muff, and blankets provided, I felt sure I would arrive a frozen statue. Would we ever reach our destination? Then I felt our pace quicken. I looked up to see a dark shape on the horizon, large enough to be a castle. There were lights in the windows, though they were faint and hardly looked welcoming. It was fully dark when the trap came to a halt. We'd passed through a stone archway and into a cobbled central courtyard. A manservant had unloaded my trunk. Another helped me down. I was shivering violently as I was led into the building and shown into a large kitchen where I sat in front of a blazing fire and told to await further instruction. I had never felt so far away from my home as I did then, so far away from my little cottage that I had shared with my mother. She had taught me all she had known about the craft of midwifery that she in turn had learned from her mother. I waited, thawing out the snowflakes on my clothing melting into drops of water that shone in the firelight. Presently, a servant came to find me and brought me up to my room. She also had little time for my questions. It's vital I see the patient as soon as possible, I said, as I removed my outer clothing. My trunk had been placed at the end of the bed, and I was glad to see a small fire flicker in the hearth. Indeed, miss, said the servant, I will tell Her Majesty that you have arrived. Dinner will be sent up to you right away. Her Majesty? I sat down on the bed. A visiting dignitary, maybe? A royal daughter exiled for an unfortunate confinement? Bemused, I rang for the servant. She hadn't got far. I must insist you let me see my patient. She must be anxious. Is this her first baby? I'm sorry, miss. The servant dropped her gaze. I... I... The old midwife took care of everything before. Oh, I said and how long was she in the employ of your mistress? I'm not sure, miss. I've only been here a few years. So there are children already? Silence. Then, no, miss. Oh, well, that made me even more anxious. If the patient has been unfortunate enough to lose a baby, then I need to see her to assess her health and that of the child. I'm sorry, miss. The servant would not meet my gaze. I must bid you good night. She closed the door gently, but I heard the grind of the key in the barrel of the lock. There was nothing I could do but climb into the cold bed and wait. 
Something awoke me at dawn. It had woken the crows, too. They screeched and wheeled around the castle walls. An unearthly scream pierced the chaos. I pulled on my clothes. Well, I would get some answers soon enough. I had heard that scream before, the scream of a woman in labor and not that far from delivery. I banged on my bedroom door. I could hear footsteps in the corridor. They were scrabbling at the lock and the door was flung open. Come quickly, miss, it's time. I grabbed my bag and ran after the servant. The next scream fell into a guttural howl and resonated through the very stones of the castle. Up the spiral staircase I followed at her heels, nearly running into her when she stopped at the door, pausing to knock. There, in the tower room on a huge canopied bed, lay my patient. I gasped when I saw her, her skin parchment, her hair not silver or gray but pure white, her lips blue. I went to her bedside and took her hand to feel her pulse. She fixed me with ice-blue eyes and dug silver nails into my hand. This one must live, she said. I was so shocked I could only do what I was there to do. I pulled up her white embroidered nightgown and felt her belly. The baby was the right way around. The head was well down. I listened for the heartbeat and stood back a minute as another contraction built. That scream, that cry, that howl. I let her breathe a second, then had her bend her knees so I could feel how dilated she was. Nine fingers. You're nearly ready to push, I said. The baby's heartbeat is good and strong. Just a few more minutes. Those ice blue eyes bore into mine. I glanced around the room. Two servants stood by the door, their heads bowed. Get me some warm water, I said, and a couple of towels and a blanket. Something was missing from the room. Get that fire going, too. I rubbed the patient's hands to try and warm them up. It really shouldn't be long now. The next contraction gripped her. She moaned and cried as it peaked, then sighed as the pain subsided, shaking. She clenched her jaw. I need to push now. All right, I began, but there was no time. The baby's head was crowning. The mother's body took over and forced it into the world. She screamed as if she were being torn apart. I held the head gently as her last convulsive push expelled the baby. Suddenly, it was all over, and I bent to attend to the child. He was still. I cut the cord and wrapped him up, checked his mouth for obstructions, then turned him over, rubbing his back roughly to stimulate his breathing. What had happened? The heartbeat had been so strong. I listened. It was very faint, but it was there. Encouraged, I prepared for mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Come on, little one, I said, glancing up at the mother who lay motionless, a faint sheen on her brow. Keep her warm, I said to the servants who were still standing by the door. Come on, she's going into shock. I needed to watch for the expulsion of the placenta, but right now the baby was my priority. I placed my mouth over its mouth and nose and breathed tiny feather breaths into its alabaster body. There was a tug at my sleeve. Leave it, miss. It's not meant to be. What? He has every chance. Sometimes when they're born quick like that, they need a bit of help. No, she was insistent. Heavy footsteps rang across the floor. 
a tall man with a shock of white hair appeared by my side and snatched the child from my arms. No, let me help him! I tried to stop the man, but I was held back by the servant. I could only watch as he strode out of the tower room. The woman on the bed stirred. Jack, she murmured, Jack, the baby! The servant girl let go of my arms and went to her mistress. I'm sorry, ma'am, she said. The woman opened her eyes and my gaze met hers for an instant. She lay motionless as the placenta was delivered. I cleaned her up as best I could, my mind and heart in turmoil. Locked back in my room, I sat by the window gazing into the colorless sky. Why hadn't they let me save the child? What had happened to it? Then the awful realization. The missing thing in the room had been a cradle. I shivered. The wind was picking up outside. It keened through the trees as thick clouds grew heavy above them. My door was unlocked and the servants appeared with coffee and bread. Hurry up, miss. We have to get you out before it starts. She glanced out the window. But but I understood I was to... Quick! The trap is waiting. If you don't go now, they'll never find their way back. I only had moments to dress properly and gather my things before I was hustled out and down to the courtyard. At least the driver had the decency to nod at me this time. The sky looked low enough to smother the earth. Even though it can't have been much past noon, it was a darkening, dirty gray. The driver glanced up often, twitching the reins and muttering. I sat with my head bowed, unable to make sense of it all. She don't remember him come the spring, said the driver. I assumed he was addressing me only because no one else was present. I beg your pardon, I said. He turned his head slightly. She don't remember them after the spring, he said. By that time, she's cooking another one. That's how it works. Nature. What? I was cold and tired and didn't understand. I just kept thinking about the poor blue baby who had no chance at life. It happens every year, he continued. The wind was picking up speed. It buffeted the cart. I'm sorry, I said. I don't know what you mean. Every year, he said, raising his voice. November, she has a baby. It dies. She grieves for the little blighter. Then come March, she's home and she's in the family way again. Every year. Oh, poor woman, I shook my head. Woman? The driver looked around at me. That ain't no woman, missy. That's the Snow Queen. I breathed in sharply. But the baby ain't meant to live. Her grieving brings the winter. Look. He pointed at the sky with his whip. It looked fit to burst. So the man, her husband, Jack Frost, he wanders the land, touching your windows with frost flowers for his child. Then back he comes and it starts all over again. But how many children? He interrupted me with the look one might give a stupid child. How many winners have there ever been? The first snowflake whirled down. Then it was as if the clouds had been ripped open. Come the following autumn, my heart began to dread November. I wished my mother was there to help me, to talk me through this thing. I had to do which went against the very fiber of my profession and of my being. I missed her so. The dead are present by their absence. 
There is no compromise with the inevitable. Sure enough, I was sent for again and brought to the top of the world. The driver was silent, but he nodded and touched his cap, helping me up into the trap. I dreaded what might happen when I got there. Might? I knew it was inevitable. Nature was too daunting an opponent to interfere with, and I had to play my part whether a willing participant or not. I wished I could think of the baby as not human, to detach myself from its imminent fate. But I had brought too many children into the world and knew it to be the time of the greatest happiness or most terrible tragedy, and I could not push my feelings to one side. This time, I did not question the staff. It was as it must have been with the previous midwife, a mutual and tacit understanding of the process. I did not unpack. I sat locked in my room and waited, wondering how I could change things and knowing that I couldn't. It was still dark when the screams woke me. My heart was heavy, but I realized I could at least take care of the mother to help her along with her ordeal. When I arrived at her bedside, however, she was not alert like last time. She seemed to drift in and out of consciousness. She opened her eyes and grabbed my arm again, but she did not speak. Not out loud, but something passed between us and I cannot tell you what. I began to examine her and immediately realized something was different. I felt her belly carefully and realized that I should keep my mouth firmly shut. The servants stood by the door as they had done last time. The queen moaned, her eyes closed. Push when you're ready, I murmured. Next contraction. This poor woman, a mere vessel. I could see the iron band of muscle tighten around her belly. She moaned, grunted, strained, the blue veins stark against her death-white skin. That's it, I said. Nearly there. Another contraction took over, then another. The baby was born in moments. Another blue boy. Blue for a boy. I cut the cord and wrapped him up, trying not to look at his little face. Godspeed to you, little one, I said quietly. I could hear his father's footsteps on the staircase, and I stood, baby in arms, as he approached. Wordlessly, I surrendered my bundle and went back to my patient. She was quiet now, eyes closed. I gently palpated her stomach. The placenta is taking its time, I said to the servants. Fetch me tincture of raspberry and make a poultice for your mistress. They looked at me. Or she may die, I hissed. Go! They went. That should give us time, I said. The queen moaned again. There was an urgency to her tone. She half opened her eyes. Listen, your majesty. I got back to the task in hand. As soon as you can, we don't have much time. I took her hand and she squeezed mine as if I were her last lifeline. Quietly now, I said. She bit her lip as her muscles contracted, instantly drawing blood. Her body was racked, then limp again. Come on, I said. Come on. With one last supreme effort, she bore down, clenching her jaw, stifling her animal instinct to vocalize her agony. I helped to ease it out. A perfect, tiny body cut the cord, wrapped it up, watched the life flood in with those first vital breaths. Pink for a girl. 
Watching the door as I worked, I laid a little bundle next to her mother, resting her in the crook of her elbow. I delivered both placentas, concealing them in a piece of linen for disposal. Then, hearing distant voices, I held my hands out for the baby. The queen smiled weakly and kissed her. Greta, she murmured, and lay back on the pillows, spent. Her tears froze on her cheeks. I threw my shawl around my shoulders, concealing the baby therein. She was only small, well-swaddled. She would feel warm and secure. The servants returned. The ordeal is over, I said. Take good care of your mistress. I've seen to everything. I looked at the queen. Her hair spread out, whiter than the whitest bed linen. Her lips were blue, but there was the faintest trace of a smile on them. It might have been the light, but I was sure there was a delicate pink in her cheeks. I kissed her forehead. Goodbye, I whispered. She did not move. Back in my room, I made sure all was ready for my departure. I hid little Greta under my thick traveling cloak close to my body to keep her warm. We bumped along in the trap. She wriggled a little but wasn't big enough to be heard amongst the squawking of the crows and the wind in the trees. I put the tip of my little finger in her mouth to pacify her. The driver looked around at me, frowning. It don't look too bad for me this year. He waved his whip at the sky. No, it doesn't, I said. I never returned to the Snow Queen's castle. I was never asked to return. I like to think the Queen had a hand in that. I think of her every November going through that terrible ordeal. But our winters are noticeably warmer now, and I like to think her heart is too. Greta rushes in from the garden, all bare legs and blonde white hair. Mummy, mummy, it's snowing! It doesn't snow often these days. She pulls at my arm with her cold hand. Her hands are always cold. Come and see, she calls as she dances out again. I watch her through the window. The snowflakes whirl around her. She laughs as she tries to catch them. The next time I look, beautiful frost flowers cover the window. One day I will tell her the story, when she's old enough. But for now, I call to her through the window. Greta, put on your jumper, it's freezing! She laughs and raises her hands to the sky. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Fact or fiction, you can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you'd like to become an official weirdo, you can support the show by becoming a patron. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness with every episode I post, and when you sign up to become a patron, I even send you a personalized thank you card in the mail. Patrons at the $10 a month level get more exclusive content such as chapters of books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them, often weeks or months before they ever hit retail or online stores. You can see what I'm currently narrating on the Become a Patron page at WeirdDarkness.com. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, find Weird Darkness on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Facebook group, 
read creepy stories, or watch eerie videos I find online, and more. And if you like the show, I could use your help in spreading weird darkness to others. Please tell your friends about the podcast. Post a link to this episode on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Maybe send a link to this episode to all the contacts on your phone or drop your friends and family an email. The more the podcast spreads, the better it can become. And while you're listening to the podcast, take a moment and leave a rating and review. I might read your comments here in the podcast. Ms. Scylla left an Apple Podcast review. She's in Sweden, and she says, This podcast is great. I can't sleep without listening to Weird Darkness, and his voice is so nice. It's scary, it's creepy, and it's Weird Darkness. Love from Cecilia from the country in North Sweden. Califorback2 uh, left a Apple Podcast review saying, I love the YouTube Weird Darkness and so happy I found it on podcast. Not too out there, but always intriguing. Great format and way of storytelling. By the way, Califorback2 is referring to my YouTube channel, which is just the audio of this podcast that I upload there for people who prefer YouTube over the podcast. They're not actual videos. And then Kara Raish, uh, she left an Apple Podcast review saying, I'm ecstatic. Thank you so much for reading my story on Creepypasta Thursday. I couldn't believe that I had wrote the story with the excellent way you read it. I love the stories and I'm always excited for new episodes. Thank you again for your hard work and making my day. Uh, by the way, the story she wrote is called The Staircase and it was used in last Thursday's Creepypasta episode and I will place a link to that in the show notes in case you've not already heard it. You can email me at darren at weirddarkness.com. And if you'd like to send me something physical in the mail, you can find my mailing address on the Weird Darkness contact page. All stories in this episode are creepypastas, so they are considered fiction. And you can find links to the stories or their authors in the show notes. I've Always Hated Dolls was written by Devin Hoover. The Snow Queen's Children was written by weirdo family member Louise Latham. She submitted that directly to WeirdDarkness.com. And then I'm a Glutton was written by R.A. Brewster. Music in this episode was provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Proverbs 3 verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, as a father the son he delights in. And a final thought. Jonathan Anthony Burkett said, Stop worrying about being that perfect person, because no one is perfect. Put your focus on being that right person that will love, understand, and care for that other. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the audiobook Murderous Minds, Volume 1, Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines by Ryan Becker. What goes on in the mind of a murderous killer? What is it about some people that lead them to commit murder? Is there something that is different, or is it simply a switch that gets turned on? 
Murderous Minds – Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines offers a look into the lives of individuals who didn't just become killers, but who managed to avoid the media storm that usually accompanies them. Inside, you will hear about people like Sante Kimes, a 65-year-old mother who was driven by greed and who committed multiple murders with her son. Robert James Ackerman, the MBA graduate who murdered three people in order to continue getting lap dances from a stripper that he became infatuated with. Larry Jean Ashbrook, who became deluded into thinking that strangers were accusing him of murder. When he could not take it anymore, he carried out a massacre at the Wedgwood Baptist Church. And more. Each story harbors its own distinct narrative and reasoning for the perpetrators of these heinous crimes, along with the background to the case, their lives, and the aftermath of their actions. Sometimes the truth is more appalling than anything fiction can provide, and Murderous Minds proves it once again. Murderous Minds, Volume 1, Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines by Ryan Becker Narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample or purchase the title on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com.